This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Our uh, Prime Minister, of course, uh, the brunt of many comments, tweets from President Donald Trump, and of course, this all centering around the North Korean summit. Uh, some think that our PM was played just to boost appeal uh, of the North Korean summit and, of course, play hardball in the eyes of Kim Jong-un. I'm not sure that's uh, good public policy or showing someone how you treat your allies makes your enemies feel any better. Uh, that being said, here's what Trade Minister Jean-Philippe Champagne had to say. You know, in diplomacy, it doesn't really matter about, you know, uh, personal feelings on personal comments. This is a matter of, of us working together with our partner, friends and allies. And here's what Trump had to say. $800 billion, $151 billion with the European Union. They don't take our agricultural products, barely. They don't take a lot of what we have, and yet they send Mercedes into us. They send BMWs into us by the millions. All right, let's bring in George Breckenridge, retired political science professor, McMaster University. He is with us now. George, thanks for the time. As always, greatly appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. So uh, your thoughts on how this is all transpiring as of today? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the, um, the, tra- you know, the trade minister is exactly right. I mean, what, what the, how the Canadian government is responding is to simply continue the way we were before this rude outbreak and, and all this nonsense around G7, and that is to continue to work with our partners within the United States. So, for example, Christian Freeland has been invited to speak to the powerful and influential uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you know, I'm sure her very, who are very sympathetic to her. The uh, American Secretary of Agriculture is currently in uh, Prince Edward Island meeting our <laughs> agriculture minister. So, so uh, we just go on because he didn't, you know, the background to this, as far as Canada is concerned, is uh, NAFTA. And he did not say he was withdrawing from NAFTA, partly because the Congress would have to approve that or any substantial change in NAFTA. And that's not guaranteed in the situation. So he hasn't withdrawn. So this may have been partly a part of his continuing kind of bullying campaign to try and and get Canada to back down on some of these issues surrounding NAFTA. And it's good that we have made it very clear that we're not going to do that. So we continue. I mean, the, the, the government has pursued, I think, a very sensible policy of reaching out to Congress and the business community and governors and all kinds of people who all know how important trade relations with Canada are to the United States. And, um, you know, who are not in favor of the, of, you know, who are absolutely opposed to any kind of trade war, which, and so the, there's going to be a bit of a pause because the Canadian, uh, our sanctions on them don't, very sensibly, uh, don't take place until January, July the 1st. So it gives <laughs> Trump a little breathing room to, to think again. So is this all about playing the tough guy as he headed into his meetings oh, yeah. with Kim well, Jong-un? Uh, yeah, this, this and, is... and really, I don't understand the logic there, though, George. Yeah. Like, why, okay, I'm going in to visit uh, an enemy, and he sees how uh, crappy I am to my allies. Well, right. So well, how is that going to make him feel any more confident? Well, not only him, but, I mean, so, you know, America's allies who are next door there, South Korea and Japan, they're wondering, what, you know, what the hell is going on? This is, if this is how he treats his allies. You know, and and is is all over. You know, he's, he's all over uh, the dictator of North Korea. <laughs> what can we expect? And and uh, so it had sent a very mixed message, I think, 
probably didn't affect my, the uh, Kim Il Jong um, much at all because, as everybody has pointed out, the one thing he wanted was to meet with the president of the United States to be seen as an equal to the president of the United States, and that's what Trump gave him. Uh, so uh, immediately after this Twitter war between uh, Trump on the plane yeah. and and and, uh, and Trudeau after the G7, yeah. aides came out and said uh, one said that the, the prime minister or sorry that the prime minister stabbed the president in the back yeah. and then yeah. he he apparently had a heart attack. There's your bad karma well, right I there, know, George. I know, I know. And then the <laughs> second one who said uh, there's a, a special place in hell. He's apologized. Well, you know, so he what doesn't does really apologize? He's taken it back he's he taking it he, back he went too far yeah i don't think he's actually apologized not in the, the normal way we understand apology well he did say he owned it and that he took it back that's i mean right, you know right. it, if, if, if it's a hard time for apology to come over your lips that's your problem i guess but yeah, I mean, but at the end of the day what does that say george when when these two people have well i say one anyway these are he's taking it back lack. yeah these are trump's latest lackeys particularly uh, the economic advisor who's fairly new on the on the job um you know and they felt under pressure, or they felt obliged to follow the boss, and they both went sort of over the top. <laughs> I don't think it had anything to do necessarily with the, the fact that he was flying to Singapore for the other summit. <clears throat> that was just a bit of a coincidence. But it was just an outbreak of bad temper because why? Because Trudeau stood up to him again in public. Yeah. And uh, anybody who does that, you know, he says, if you hit me, I'll hit you 10 times harder. That's his philosophy of life. And so that's what it was about, I think, more than more than any kind of calculation in relation to the summit in Singapore. Uh, how is this playing to Americans in America? And we could say it depends who you ask in the sense that if yeah. you're if the base loves this, they'll lap this up. Yeah. But on the other hand, no matter if you're the base or not, sooner or later, you have to come to the conclusion yeah. that he seems to get along and like his enemies better than he does his allies. <laughs> yes, he certainly does. I mean, that, that's Is this pretty... about strategy or changing world order? No, I, I think it's partly... Um... Uh, just to, it's partly him. It's his temperament. I mean, he he clearly feels much more affinity with people who have um, you know sort of much more power than he finds he has. He thought. I mean, he said this. He thought when he became president, he would sort of be able to order everybody around. And of course, that isn't the way the system works at all. And so, for for example, in the Congress, he very quickly in the first year he realized he he couldn't simply order even his own party to do certain kind of things. So that gets a bit stymied with that. And when, then what happens to every president sooner or later is they realize that in foreign policy, or if you like also in this particular case in trade policy as well, they have a lot more room for maneuver, you know, on their own. Mm. And so he's trying that. And he's enjoying himself. He's got rid of a lot of the advisors who were trying to counsel him to be more sensible, you know, not do things. Most of them are either gone or they're, they're you know, or they're sidelined or whatever it is. And now he's got people around him who basically, you know, aid and abet him. You know, and, and you can tell George he's having a better time. Even his comments. Oh, yeah, he's and, enjoying it. Yeah. Even the comments he's made after the G7 and and post summit, yeah. saying that you know I, I think the guy in relationship with uh, Kim Jong Un, yeah, yeah I, I think it's all this. I think it's all this. And, and and I may be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'll admit it or I'll make something up. I mean, just well, even yeah. the way he now characterizes himself. Oh yeah, he's having a great time. I mean, yeah. he, But this is the early stage of this, yeah. of this sense of freedom, because in both cases, both in the trade case, but also in relation to North Korea, um, you know, 
the, there's a certain reality which will catch up with them fairly quickly. In the, in the trade case, I mean, the economic realities are such that there's almost unanimous opposition from the business community, from the farming community. This is in America. The farming community, from the Congress, although the Republicans are being a bit subdued because of the upcoming elections, but but the uh, the basic economic his ideas about economics are all pretty screwy. I mean, he really doesn't understand it at all, and so it's all based on sort of funny notions. And he admits in some cases he may, he just makes figures up. Yeah, yeah. yeah, true so enough. There's, there's an economic reality which is which is which is I think is building in the United States. And did, did he, and again, just getting back to the G seven yeah. going from one to the other. You said it was probably coincidental. So you know, you don't necessarily. Well, the timing was coincidental. But you don't necessarily think, or do you think that that Trump was trying to send a message to Kim? Don't play me. Like this Trudeau uh, guy is trying to play well, me. Don't anybody play me. Well, maybe. I mean, that's what his his lackeys argued. Yeah. That you know he mustn't show any weakness in face of. But I mean, there wasn't any danger of showing any weakness because he gave. Kim, what he wanted and what he has always wanted, what his father wanted, what his grandfather wanted, he couldn't get, is a summit meeting with the American president. And that's what Trump gave him for free. Now, Trump now says there's no nuclear threat from Korea, North Korea anymore. Well, you know, he's <laughs> that's just nonsense, quite, quite frankly. They're not going to give up their nuclear deterrence at all. Of course not, because that's the one thing that has got them as far as this. So, uh, you know, so we have to see what actual baby steps come out of this, if anything, on the Korean front. So you think this, as far as Donald Trump's concerned, because many are questioning world order now. Many are yeah, questioning what know, the heck's going on. And all of a sudden, and, and I, I don't mean to sound alarmist, but some are questioning whether this is a Hitler moment or not, whether whether the tide is changing yeah. with what we're seeing here. Well, there, there are certainly signs of that. I mean, one of the, one of the things is America. Has is it been, that? Is it is is it? He's trying to change world order, or it's is it just his lack of knowledge? Well, I, I, I mean, the, the the basic reality is that America has been the guardian and the cornerstone of the world order which has been pretty stable, you know, since World War II, basically. Now, somebody, people, some people have pointed out that, the, first of all, Obama also wanted to sort of pull the horns in a little bit, but Trump is going way further than that. And, you know, with his America First stuff, that's completely, you know, way beyond that. America First, as if, you know, we don't care, but we're, we're fed up with the rest of the world. We're not going to carry you any longer. And we're all we're concerned about is, is us. And that, if that is allowed to persist, it simply reinforces a lot of the kind of the political movement that you see in if places like Italy and, and, and Brexit and all this kind of thing. Well, or even, you know, you might even, no, I, no I'll, leave, I'll leave Doug Ford out of this. It's not, it's not fair to include him in this discussion. <laughs> but but uh, a lot of people see, are worried about these kind of nativist uh, signs in a variety of but other that, you know what that says to me, George. That says you know people are worried about democracy. People are well, worried. That's right. Yeah, that's wait a second. People democracy. people are worried because the voter, the electric is the electorate is finally speaking up. That's mm. not a bad thing. No, it isn't. But I mean, it just feel it just feels like political. People, it just feels like political parties 
have, and we saw this with the liberals in the provincial election, uh-huh. they've just lost touch with people. And that's what you get well, when that happens. Parties do eventually. That's right. No, I think that's right. But the trouble is you see a lot of the, the parties which are, which are getting uh, elected in a democratic way in a lot of these countries, and this certainly includes the Republican Party in the United States, are, are morphing into very undemocratic institutions. You know, he is, he is complete master of the Republican Party. Now, the evidence is that the Republican Party support is, is actually, you know, getting less. But of those who are still there, which is a significant segment of the American population, they just love him. You know, they just love him. And uh, so there are signs of that all over the place. I think it's too early, much too early to get, you know, to be too uh, pessimistic about where this is going. But there's certainly changes in the air. There's no doubt about that in terms of the the, the world order. I mean, China, I mean, the, the, the one factor which has not been talked about very much in relation to this situation in North Korea currently is China. Yet China in many ways holds all most of the cards there. Mm. You know, and yet they are—they have not been factored into exactly what this this apparent coziness between Trump and Kim Kim Il Jong Kim Il Kim Jong Un, um, what it does to the dynamics in that area. I say the South Koreans and the Japanese, who are dependent, uh, who very much depend on the American support, and the fact that Trump says, "Well, he'd like to take all American troops home." Well, uh-huh. that leaves them completely at the mercy of China, which is much bigger and, and getting richer by the day. Will building condos along the beautiful shoreline <laughs> solve this problem? Will it create instant wealth no, for North Korea? I think we're a long way from that. So. <laughs> that's typical Trump speak. Yeah, that's what he thinks about. How will the Republican Party respond to this? Well, the Republican Party is now in two bits. I mean, you had to say you have the passionate... Um, Trump supporters, no matter what he does, no matter what he says, all the rest of it. Uh, and there was, there's evidence in some of the primary elections that have been going on that that pays off in the Republican Party at the minute in the United States. But a big, but the old Republican Party, the Republican establishment, has not gone away. They are lamenting what is happening to or what has happened to their party. But, you know, where are they going to go? You know, and this is the business community. It's always been a business party. And Trump is not, you know, sending all these confusing and mixed messages. And they're also a free trade party. Well, exactly. Absolutely they are. And and have been, the Democrats are the ones who've been split on free trade. But the Republicans have been a solid free trade, free enterprise party. And so where does that element of the party, at the minute they're, they're subdued because they're afraid, the ones in Congress are afraid of Trump because he has this capacity to rile up their support. You know, people to challenge them for for re-election, but uh, whether that will ch- dynamic will change after November, when the Republicans will probably lose control of Congress anyway, quite likely. What happens when that happens, George? Because uh, well, everyone's been talking about it. It certainly looks like I I don't know your guess. Will they lose the House? It certainly appears that way. What happens at that point? Well, that's going to be very interesting. That'd be another that'd be another stage. I mean, I I think what's happened with Trump the first year. He he was learning that he didn't have the power in Washington that he thought he was going to have. And then he discovered foreign policy and trade and this sort of thing else. And now he's doing what he wants to do. And as we've been saying, he's having a great time. But reality is bound to catch up with him sooner rather than later. If the Democrats take control of Congress, um, or even just the House itself, 
uh, because the Senate, otherwise the Senate would be pretty close either way, I think. Um, then you're in a different dynamic. And he, if he wants to get anything done, he'll have to talk to the Democrats. A lot of people think he might get on better with the Dem- some of the Democrats than he has with the, the congressional Republicans. Hmm. So you're into a whole new, you know, the se- a whole new second half of his presidency, which could be very interesting. Was the North Korean summit just a shell game? Was it just smoke and mirrors? Well, I mean, in the, in the sense that it didn't really lead to anything concrete. I mean, what uh, on their part, they didn't give anything. They didn't give anything. They just talked about, you know, they're willing to, in principle, you know, denuclearize, you know, denuclearize North Korea. Will that be enough of a success for Trump? Well, if it happened, it would be, but it's not going to happen. I mean, why, why on earth would they? The one thing we is very clear about. Um, Kim Jong Un, Kim Jong Un, is that he is no fool. I mean, he is a he is a smart cookie. Trump is right about that. <laughs> and but so, uh, why would he he's... give away his the one deterrent? You know, there's the one claim to. Let me ask you this, George: If if he's that smart, uh, and no other uh, president or what have you has given uh, this this regime the light of day, the yeah. the fact that he now has. Trump's at least handshake right. and, and that meeting. Yeah. Does this here I'm sounding like the eternal optimist. Does is 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 Kim Jong un smart enough to take advantage of that? Is Kim Jong un well to me and, and he, say, he hey, this well is an opportunity? Because, well he may well be because the thing that has changed in relation to North Korea is they now have sort of completed their nuclear program. They have they have intercontinental missiles, which we're told could you know could hit the United States. That's as far as he needs to go. He's got America's attention, and so he, that's what brought Trump. Um, quite sensibly, I think you know you, the, the, it's too dangerous to keep yelling and calling one another names all the time in, in a situation like that. Much better to talk to them. But of course, the complaint that a lot of the experts have is he's given he, Trump has given a lot away for free, without any real guarantee that the North Koreans are going to do anything. But it, it may be that they do want to they want to you know, lose a lot of the sanctions. They probably does want to develop economically. Did, and um, did Trump? What does he have to do to get that? Did Trump really give anything away? Because at the end of the day, he can flip flop just like the other guy can. Yeah, but he, you know, the in 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 the in the North Korean regime, the the prestige of the you know the the leader, uh, is almost like a religious cult really around the, around the leader. So for for the leader to be seen as successful, and and operating on a par with, you know, the most powerful man in the world, hmm. it boosts his position in North Korea very substantially. George Breckenridge has been with us, retired political science professor at McMaster University. Always fascinating. Thanks again for the time, George. Okay. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Why does Donald Trump get along better with enemies than he does his allies? Feel free to weigh in on that. We'd love to hear your thoughts, 900CHML.com. All right, we've been talking a lot about uh, the G7 and, of course, how it, uh, I guess, in some way was interwound with the North Korean uh, summit with Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump in the sense that uh, Trump was on his way there uh, on the uh, on Air Force One when he started lashing out at uh, Trump, or sorry, at Trudeau, and then just continued to double down 
on the uh, whole thing. Um, some thought that this was try to to try to impress Kim Jong Un. I'm I'm not sure how that works. Uh, either way, here's what U.S. President Donald Trump had to say with Fox News uh, had to say to Fox News host Sean Hannity. I think without the rhetoric, we wouldn't have been here. I really believe that. You know, we did sanctions and all of the things that you would do. But I think without the rhetoric, you know, other administrations, I don't want to get specific on that, but they had a, a policy of silence. If they said something very bad, very threatening and horrible, just don't answer. That's not the answer. That's not what you have to do. That's it. It's more rhetoric, I guess. Uh, let's bring in Simon Palomar, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation, and with us now. Simon, thanks for the uh, time. Much appreciated. Oh, it's a pleasure as always, Scott. Is that what we need, more rhetoric? Is that the key? If, uh, you know, the guy is being a bully, you just be a bully back twice as hard. Is that what you do here? Well, I'll put it this way. In, um, go to any think tank, any foreign ministry around the world, no one's going to say that... Uh, they don't like dialogue. Dialogue is great. You need to talk with your enemies, your friends as well. You know, Winston Churchill said, you know, better jaw, jaw than war, war. Not, not actually sure that that is. It's one of those things we remember him as saying. Dialogue's great, but it needs to uh, lead somewhere. And it's not clear that uh, it was, you know, President Trump's. Um, retaliatory statements that every time Kim Jong-un or the Korean, North Korean government made a threat that because Trump responded in kind, that that's what got him this meeting. He more or less got this meeting because Kim offered and he accepted. Uh, the difference there is that previous presidents would never have accepted such a meeting. They wouldn't have taken it. So it's not clear that rhetoric got him here. It was more a desire that he wanted to talk to Kim, and he was willing to um, put his reputation on the line in a way that previous uh, U.S. presidents wouldn't have. Uh, talk about the value of this meeting to Kim Jong-un, because many think uh, the fact that he even that Trump even gave him this meeting is giving him the farm, is giving away the farm, uh, especially to have such a meeting without any sort of real concrete uh, evidence, although they certainly did sign something the way Donald Trump uh, signed. So what is your take on this as we digest it a couple of days later? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure as you've heard, I've heard and read from other sources that this is largely being seen as a, a pretty good summit for Kim and not a very good one for Trump. And, you know, my view is fairly similar. And the reasons for that is you get into this, this uh, declaration that both men signed. And what was remarkable about it is that, uh, for the most part, the Americans accepted what's typically the, the North Korean language and proposals on these issues. So I'll just use one example, but the, the term complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, that's been North Korea's favored you know, policy formulation for almost 30 years now. And what that means, uh, according to North Koreans typically, is that not only will North Korea eventually get rid of its nuclear weapons, but there won't be any nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula, which means not only will the Americans not be allowed to introduce them to South Korea, but the Americans won't be allowed to protect South Korea with nuclear weapons. And in fact, this denuclearization might happen as part of a more general disarmament effort by all the other countries in the world that have nuclear weapons. So it's North Korea saying, 
yeah, this is a great idea far off in the future, and we're happy to work towards it, but it's not going to be unilateral North Korean disarmament. That was something that was that was first really solidly um, discussed and put on paper in 1992. And for years, the United States insisted, no, it has to be essentially unilateral. It has to essentially be North Korea giving these up, us confirming they've given them up, and then we'll talk about relieving sanctions, et cetera. Donald Trump seemed to accept Kim's uh, formulation there. And in that and of itself, that's a tremendous success for Kim. That being said, Donald Trump pretty much flip-flops with every plane ride or tweet. Uh, what's to stop him from as soon as the, the, the I guess the bombs hit the fan or the, 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 the language hits the fan, all of a sudden saying, well, you know, it's off then. I mean, are we expecting anything less? Yeah, and that's a really important point. Um, it's critical that everybody remember this wasn't a, a, a treat or anything like that. A treaty is a legal document. The United States, for the United States to enter into a treaty, the Senate has to approve it, et cetera. This was two men sitting down with their translators, having a discussion about, you know, the state of affairs between their countries and seeing what they can agree on, writing it down that we agree to this, and they signed it. So ultimately, as a, you know, legal document, as a policy document, uh, however you want to frame it, it doesn't have a whole lot of weight. So, so what are the chances, Simon, that Donald Trump ends up exactly where everyone else has ended up when having these discussions over the years? I think they're very high. I mean, if I were to, you know, just off the top of my head make up a number, I mean, it's, you know, 75%, 80%. I mean, it's far more likely than not that this summit, well, it did have both men publicly agreeing to these long-term goals together, you know, for all the world to see. And that, that entails some... Some risk if they then turn their back on each other. Well, they've kind of embarrassed themselves, but there's a good chance that we will end up where we were, you know, two, three, five, ten years ago. So, how does Trump respond to that? Uh, you know, in a press conference after the summit, he said something along the lines of, you know, maybe it won't work out. If it doesn't, well, you know, I'll say so or I'll make something else up. Or like, he gave a very flip answer about the whole thing. But how will he package this as a win if nothing really changes? Yeah, that's, you know, a very important, I think, question for us to think about. And part of the answer there, it lies in the fact that this is a fairly brief declaration that the two men signed. It is broad. It's really about the their vision of relations between North Korea and the United States. And yes, it has obligations that each country has to fulfill, but they're left very, very vague. And that gives both Kim and Trump a lot of wiggle room. If Trump wants to keep this process alive, he'd say, well, North Korea is basically, basically living up to its obligations. And if that includes that, you know, the North Koreans not going to, you know, work with him. They're not going to work to some kind of concrete victory that he can point to. The whole the whole doc- document is vaguely worded enough that he can essentially talk his way out and say, well, in fact, you know, North Korea committed to complete denuclearization. They're not taking those steps. Kim Jong Un tried to take advantage of me, and he's going to find out that it's very foolish to take advantage of me. And we- Exactly. Like, we can see this. Can't we see this coming, Simon? Like, I mean, you know, this is a photo op, and then he'll say, oh, well, I tried. Yeah, and that's that's very much, 
you know, the situation we're in now. Did, does this summit have some value for Donald Trump in, in real terms? Absolutely. You know, we are looking at uh, some really toughly contested midterm elections in November. If the House of Representatives were to flip to the Democrats, that could make the next two years of Donald Trump's administration very difficult for him. He's got a lot of lot riding on this. He can go on the, the campaign trail and stump for Senate candidates and House candidates and say, look, look what we're accomplishing. Look at this summit. I brought home a promise that no other president could. That does benefit him. But the likelihood that we'll see the process stall, fall apart, and we'll be back to finger pointing six, seven, eight months from now, I mean, it's it's a pretty solid bet. So what happens once Donald Trump realizes he's been played by Kim Jong-un? Are we back to fire and fury? Well, rhetorically, yeah, I think there's a very good chance that we are. Um, you know, substantively, it's in, it will, we'll be back to where we were in January, where you'll recall, you know, foreign ministers met from around the world in Canada to discuss how to coordinate their their sanctions policy, their engagement policy on North Korea. So, you know, there's a very good chance that, you know, we'll be back, you know, in the recent past, which isn't a bad place to be. There, There is a consensus or a near consensus out there in the world that North Korea should at least pare back its nuclear weapons program, and there's a lot of governments who will push it to do so. But, um, you know, it's, it's a long slog. It's a lot of talking, a lot of bargaining, a lot of disappointment, and it doesn't happen overnight or in a weekend, as I think we're, we're finding out. So uh, um, what does it say to everyone, including Americans, when it appears that Donald Trump enjoys our enemies more than he does our allies? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really interesting you know, question. Obviously something I think you know, a lot of us have been thinking about this past week. And I don't have a, a perfect answer there, but I'll say... I will say this. It's easy for Donald Trump to heap praise on Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un to to sit down, have a a conversation with Putin, have a conversation with Kim, where ultimately they're not agreeing to much, if anything. He doesn't actually have to work with these leaders on a daily basis. With, uh, With Putin, it's because the rest of his government really won't let him. And with Kim, it's because it's highly unlikely that the North Korean government will follow through on any promises that it's made in the long run. So it's easy for him to sit down, have a photo op, agree to some things that the United States and North Korea agreed to 5, 10, 20 years ago, because there isn't an ongoing relationship there. You know, Justin Trudeau, on the other hand, Canada, well, fact is, Canada is still the United States' number one trade partner. You know, there are millions of dual citizens. Uh, Canadians travel to the United States and vice versa on a daily basis. There's an actual real substantive relationship there. And in any relationship, there are pressure points, there are, there's friction, there's times you disagree. So he can't really escape Justin Trudeau or uh, Theresa May or, uh, or the Mexican uh, 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 president. But he can, for the most part, not have to deal with Vladimir Putin or, or Kim Jong-un, which makes it easy to heap praise on them because because the two sides are so diametrically opposed, he doesn't really have to 
interact with them. Simon, are we reading way too much into this? A lot of people are stunned by the question that I just asked you that, you know, why does this guy seem to enjoy our enemies more than than our allies? Some are even saying that, my goodness, this is this is like a change in the world order from post-World War II. Is it all of that or is it he 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 appears to like our enemies more because he doesn't necessarily have a lot of friends. Is it, well, is it, is it change in world order or is it, he treats his enemies and his friends the same way? I'm not sure if it's a change in the world order yet. That's well, you qualified point. by saying yet, Simon, and I'm not sure that makes me feel any more comfortable. There are big challenges out there, right? In the world. Um, there are, there is, you know, Russia invading its neighbors and, you know, carving off pieces here and there. There are millions of people fleeing uh, war in the Middle East, millions of people fleeing a lack of economic opportunities in Africa. We have climate change. We have uh, tremendous um, problems with law and order in Central America. And all of these problems predated Donald Trump, right? So if we want to worry about the state of the world, there's plenty to worry about and Hmm. plenty of things to occupy our time. I do think that Donald Trump, for the most part, this is a matter of style over substance. But the U.S. was always sort of the world's policeman, you know, and now we're questioning if that cop is corrupt or not. So, uh, you know, again, I understand your argument, but on the other hand, it was this world order that kept the lid on all of this and stopped the rest of the planet from being that way. Yeah, and that's where we do encounter a problem, because whereas... You go to the State Department, you go to the Department of Defense, you go to governor's mansions across the United States, you go to the U.S. Senate. They like what we call, you know, the world order, America's role in the world. They like Canada. Now you've got a chief executive who's mercurial. He doesn't see the point or he doesn't understand the point or, frankly, maybe he doesn't care. He's not interested in the rest of the world. And that can start to add up. That can start to bite because he is the final decision maker in the United States. So it's 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 a rough situation there's no lying about that we have the united states on the one hand that is so tightly tied up in the rest of the world it can't help but be you know whether it's the policeman of the world or the the lender of last resort or or whatever you want to talk about and on the other hand you have a chief executive right now who has you know very little interest in that and is more interested in pursuing domestic uh uh, domestic uh, tiffs and fights with his political opponent. So, you know, it, it's it's not clear that the, the world as we know it is ending. But, you know, like I said before, all those problems that predated Donald Trump, mm. he doesn't necessarily make them any easier to tackle. Where does this leave the Republican Party, especially when they were the champions behind free trade and all of this? Uh, how do they... How do they position this within their own party? Yeah, what we've seen is Republicans have found a way, you know, those those classes, those free trade Republicans, the ones that boosted, uh, you know, NATO, the ones that, um, you know, were some of the loudest voices about confronting the USSR during the Cold War. A lot of them are holding their noses, supporting Donald Trump since he was duly elected. He is their president. He is a Republican and hoping that he doesn't do too much damage. And they're quietly, you know, opposing him where they can. We've finally seen the, the U.S. You know, Congress, for example, 
getting fairly firm on on relations with Russia, putting up all sorts of roadblocks that present, prevent the president from embracing Vladimir Putin too closely. But on other issues like trade tariffs, of course, as you know, anybody in Hamilton's aware, Congress hasn't really exerted that much power. And are we getting there slowly? Perhaps. But right now, Republicans, they're frankly, probably fairly concerned about their, their midterm prospects. Are they going to lose control of the House of Representatives? Are they possibly going to lose control of the Senate? I mean, it, it's a distinct possibility. So right now, there is the view that they have to, uh, they have to you know, rally around the president, like him or not, and plenty do not, and, and hope to not show weakness or internal division in the face of a, a fairly you know, grumpy U.S. electorate. Mitch McConnell must be just loving this. Uh, I'm sure he, he swings between love and hate. I mean, it, <laughs> it, 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 this is the sort of thing that gives you heartburn, I think, if you're Mitch McConnell. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, uh, what happens post-summit? So all this pomp and circumstance is over now. The photo ops are over. Everyone's gone home. What now? How long yeah. before another shoe falls? Yeah, and that's one of the things we've been thinking about is let's let's assume for a second that this was a serious good faith effort by both men to, you know, move the ball down the field a little bit. What 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 would they have to do? And um, can we, you know, get some lessons from the past on this? And, you know, ideally what we'd want to see at this point is, you know, you get the technical experts in there. You don't even want the foreign ministers meeting yet. You don't want Mike Pompeo there yet. You want the technical experts to see, you know, who can sit down with the North Koreans, talk about, you know, well, if you're serious about denuclearizing, what do you have? Describe the nuclear program to us. And then maybe we can talk about some steps that you can take that uh, we might meet with some sanctions relief or something like that. But, you know, the big political issues, you know, well, if this is a serious effort, those have been settled. We're going to denuclearize. We're going to, you know, have a peace treaty. Now it's time to get the technical experts in there talking about what does that actually mean and, and what's a viable path to move forward. Now, what we've heard is that Trump thinks that his Secretary of State, State Mike Pompeo, should be over there uh, soon. And that strikes me as, again, Trump looking for high-level political commitments, but not really willing to get to the nitty-gritty. And mm. the problem is if we don't get to the nitty-gritty and we don't see any progress, we can easily get back to that scenario that yeah. you and I were talking about a couple minutes ago where they're pointing fingers at each other saying, well, you're not living up to your, your obligations, and somebody else pointing right back at them, accusing them of the same. Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley. The reason, oh, yep, the reason being the uh, World Cup 2026 bid has been announced. Canada will co-host the games alongside the U.S. and Mexico. And who knows, maybe this will work wonders, uh, although, you know, hopefully Trump will be long gone by then. Uh, maybe this will work wonders uh, in, in helping relations with Canada, the United States, uh, in Mexico. Uh, first of all, here's what uh, the World Cup, of course, coming to Canada in uh, 2026. Here's what John Herdman, the head coach of the Canadian men's national soccer team, had to say. Well, it's uh, officially football Christmas for Canada. It's here. Um, it's one of those mornings you wonder if uh, Santa's going to come and 
He absolutely did this morning. And, you know, what a feeling, I think, for everyone in this country. And here's what Toronto Mayor John Tory had to say. It really is a once-in-a-generation opportunity now that Canada is a part of the group that is going to host this uh, World Cup uh, to showcase our country and to showcase uh, Toronto around the world because there is uh, no sporting event, no single sporting event that happens that is uh, showcased more on a global basis. All right, and here's what the organization's president had to say. The member associations of Canada... Mexico and USA have been selected by the FIFA Congress to host the 2026 FIFA World Cup. Thank you. All right, fresh from his trip from Africa, uh, Scott Radley is joining us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You, of course, can read him in the Hamilton Spec and hear him uh, weeknights right here on CHML. Scott, how are you? I am great, except I have no idea what time it really is, <laughs> and I think I'm supposed to be in bed right now. I'm not really sure. We'll see. Tonight Tonight on the show could be really interesting because the jet lag will have fully kicked in. I, if I start talking gibberish, I'm not having a stroke. I'm just not really knowing where I am. You're just so uh, not used to sleeping in your own bed as opposed to out on some uh, plane somewhere with animals roving around you. It was amazing. It really is. Uh, one of these days we'll chat about it, but it's, uh, if anyone is looking for an experience, man, oh man, I can't recommend anything more. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about it now just simply because okay. this is on my wife's bucket list. It should be. Uh, going to Nashville is on mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're a realist, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Africa is on hers. Uh, just give us a brief scenario. And I know, make sure you're listening to Scott tonight because I'm sure he'll have lots of great stories. But just, just give us a, a roundabout. Uh, what was this like? What was the experience for you? Oh, it, look, it, as I say, if you're looking for something that is. A, a million percent different from our life here. And you, I mean, you have to like experiencing other things. If you are locked in your, you know, I, I'm comfortable here and I'd like to be here, then this is not for you. But if you we like should to, say you went on an African safari. Well, it was partially that. We did right. that while we were there. We did some other things as well. But I mean, the safari, I'll tell you just one story about this because we stayed in this one lodge, rustic, not a hotel. It was, it was elevated tents that were on like a platform on stilts. And it was... Right. You eat outside in this, and it was lovely. The food was great. The place was very nice. But we're eating outside the one night, and it gets very dark very suddenly. In about the span of 10 minutes, it goes from pretty light to just pitch black. Then we're eating outside, and suddenly we hear this rustling and snapping and crackling over to our left. (laughs) And, you know, we're not really sure what's going on, and it gets louder and louder. And suddenly, as we're in our main course, there is an elephant that walks through the bushes and is 20 feet away from us having his dinner. Mm. And you're like, this is not what we see in Hamilton very often. No. If it is, something has gone horribly wrong with the circus. Um, it's, it, it was remarkable. I mean, it just, it's one of those things where you're just standing there looking at this elephant 20 feet away that's completely wild, and you're saying, this is exactly the kind of thing we came to see. It was amazing. But I, I say, your wife is a wise woman. How, to have this on her list. How, um, now that you return from a place like that, how does it make you view where you are, where you live? Uh, I'll say this. We were there, we did the safari thing, and, and but we also did some other things. Went to, uh, took a whole bunch of stuff. We had a bunch of people here at the spec and elsewhere who had donated some things and took, uh, took some stuff to an orphanage 
which was, um, you know, just one of those experiences that, again, I mean, you, re- you realize how blessed you are. We have very good friends who adopted. We went to this orphanage because they had, they're from Hamilton. They had adopted a daughter from this particular orphanage. We wow. wanted to, we've known her since she was a baby now, hmm. and we wanted to see that. But we also were going, because there's a group that's out of Hamilton. I've had them on my show before, same, same friends. Uh, she's a doctor who started a group called Save the Mothers which is a maternal health organization for women in the developing world, specifically in East Africa, because they have, in that part of the world, there are literally hundreds of women, basically statistically every day, who die from very preventable health mm. issues in childbirth and in yeah. pregnancy, which mm. we hear, you would never imagine that someone would die from this. But mm. they're, anyway, uh, we went and saw some of the work that was being done there. And we're going to, we're going to on the show in the coming days, talk about that because I'll say this, um, the work that is being done by this group, by save the mothers is amazing. It is truly amazing when you consider what they're doing, but the, what they have to work with is, uh, I don't know if devastating, it's not devastating, but yeah. the work is inspiring. Mm. What they have to work with is really sobering and we went into this one clinic and the neonatal intensive care ward is a tiny what do you call it? like a um uh, what do you call it? where you put the babies uh, uh, incubator uh, incubator thank yeah. you in a room that is basically a closet with a sign on the door that says special needs or special care room it, it's they had three birthing beds in a small room, nothing dividing them but a curtain, so you would be next to someone who is giving mm-hmm. birth three feet away. Uh, no real privacy, and I said, but surely you have more than three women at some times who would be giving birth or in labor at the same time. What do you do then? And she says, well, on, on the floor. Yeah. And it's like it is truly sobering when you see. So we're going to be doing something. I'm, I'm thinking of doing it through the show because there's other things as well. I'm going to allow people the opportunity there are some very significant things that can be done to make things far, far, far better for very little money. I mean, relatively speaking, Scott, nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, huge, impactful stuff that they just simply don't have the resources to do. And so in the next few days, in the next little while, we're going to be chatting about this because it's, you know, I I don't want to turn the show. I don't think anybody does. I I want it to be a always a depressing thing or turn it into a telethon. But mm. when you see some of the stuff, you say, I'm sure there are people out there who for the price of, I don't know, two or three coffees that they would have in a week would want to be able to have that kind of impact that they, and when you see some pictures and I'll post them later, mm. um, you know, it's amazing what you can do with very little money. Wow. Anyway. It, it sounds like an incredible experience and really uh, yeah, something that... Uh, but tell your wife to hopefully. keep bugging you to get going. No, I, it's well worth it. <laughs> it's not like I'm against it. <laughs> I have, it's on my list too. And I might say Nashville's on hers, so you know. Uh, congratulations. Good for you. And uh, you. Yeah, it, it, it'll make for lots of uh, great and interesting shows as you move forward with this. Uh, talk about uh, the World Cup, the 2026 bid. What does this mean? What will this look like? Well, there's a couple things to this that are, uh, is, this is an American bid. Let's be honest. This is, this is a United States World Cup right. that has spillover to Mexico and to Canada. I think that if I remember correctly, the numbers are something like 60 games, including the playoffs and the championship in the States, 10 in Mexico, 10 in Canada. 
and that's not and it's not to poo-poo it. That's not to turn up your nose at it. It's an important thing. Um, and assuming, and I was reading something today that suggests that there's no guarantee. Usually the host team is given an automatic bid. Right. But because there are three host teams, they're saying, well, they haven't really decided yet if Canada is going to have an automatic berth. Let's hope they do. But if they get in, you would assume, you would expect that Canada's home games will be in Canada. Yeah. And that is a great thing. That's, a, that, that's an amazing thing to have that opportunity to expose the men's team to Canadians. Because let's be very honest, Scott, in the last uh, decade, almost, the women's team in the public consciousness has yeah. far surpassed the men's team. Mm-hmm. Far surpassed the men's team. Uh, we have a team that, not to put, not to be too blunt, but our team stinks. Our men's team stinks. So yeah. we've got eight years now, knowing that this is going to be here, knowing that you're going to have this kind of stage and this kind of platform. You have eight years now to turn this into something decent. Keeping in mind that the one time Canada was in the World Cup, which was 1986, our team didn't score a single goal. Lost all three games, didn't score a goal. Hmm. So the, the bar to beat where we were yeah. is not very high. So you've got eight years. No one thinks Canada's going to win the World Cup. There's no. not, that, that's not even a thought. But can we, in eight years, put together a men's team with John Herdman, who you played a clip of coming in, can we put together a men's team that is, A, competitive, and B, can at least score a goal? If they score one goal, they've sure. improved over where they were right. in 86. So it, any... it, it's, it's a big chance, though, for soccer to be a main discussion point. We already have lots of soccer fans, but mm-hmm. it is a main discussion point of sports in this country. You talked about the majority of the games being in the United States, 10 being in Mexico, say 10 here. Do we know where? Are we are, Would they be in yes. the same city? Would they be in different cities? In the well, we'll in, in the states, there's lots of cities that are bidding for this. We don't know where they're going to be there. There's only three in Canada: Edmonton, Montreal, and Toronto mm-hmm. that will be hosting. We don't have one here in Hamilton. It would be great if it was a Tim Hortons field, but so we will get, as I say, presumably if Canada gets a bid, and I, I can't imagine they wouldn't want to have all three of the host teams in there. But if if Canada gets a bid, the Canadian games you would expect would be here. I don't really, maybe I'm wrong, I don't really expect that they're going to put uh, too many of the other huge teams, huge primo games in Canada. They're going to want to put those in the States because they're the main bidder. So we may end up with Canadian games, which would be huge, and then some B-level games, as much as they can be B-level in the World Cup. But again, the issue here is... It's not so much who is playing, although that certainly matters. It's that it is being played here. And for the soccer community, I think that what this is going to be is a huge opportunity, again, to put the spotlight on this for the next eight years. I mean, think of it for the Olympics. When we had the Vancouver Olympics, we had been meh in the Winter Olympics leading up to that. Remember, we hadn't won a, a gold medal yeah. on home. So mm-hmm. When we suddenly had the Vancouver Olympics, own the podium started, money poured in, better development, all this kind of thing. And what happened? The Vancouver Olympics were an amazing success story. I expect, I think, I would hope that the Canadian soccer would be in touch with the own the podium people, would be talking to them, would be following some of the same things to make sure. Especially with this much lead time. Especially with this much lead time, because here's the worst possible scenario. The best possible scenario 
is that Canada's team is competitive and puts on a good showing like our women's team did when we hosted the World Cup, what, three, four years ago? I can't remember now how many years ago, 2015. Uh, they didn't make, they didn't win, but they were competitive. They looked good. They made the country proud. They created conversation. The worst case scenario is for Canada's team to show up to have shown very little improvement to go out there and get slaughtered by whomever they go out there. And then when the World Cup ends, you look and you say, well, how did that help soccer in Canada? This is a huge opportunity to take soccer, which is, I think right now, my numbers are right, that soccer is the number one participation sport in this country, to take it from there and make it into something that is bigger than that on a competitive level, on a organization level. There's lots of things that this kind of event can do to build the sport in this country. Why did this bid work, especially with it being spread out over the continent? Because, well, it's a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, the competition for the bid for the for the event was not huge. There weren't a lot of great competitors. And B, it's been a while since it's been in the states. And if mm. you are FIFA, regardless of where soccer stands in the U.S. pecking order of sports, the United States is still where the money is. It's still where the eyeballs are. It's still where the TV revenue is. They still want to somehow keep trying to get that foothold to the point where soccer will become bigger and bigger and bigger. If, if, so- if FIFA, the governing body of soccer, if it could ever get, do something, if it could ever create that scenario where soccer is now maybe not on a level, but closing in on some of the other big sports, man, the money for them and the money for the world of soccer just goes through the roof. So there is huge incentive for North America to embrace this game. And what better way to embrace it than to throw the World Cup there. We saw this after the World Cup, the Women's World Cup right. in, what was the one where she tore off her shirt and had the sports bra underneath? Brandy Chastain after 98? scoring the goal. That was at 98. That one led to a huge upsurge in women's soccer in the States, a huge upsurge. Now, the Men's World Cup, which I think was 1990, was the last time the men's was here in the U.S. Um, it had some impact, but it faded. But I think the platform has changed a bit. I think people's tastes have changed. I think there's an opportunity that, again, with eight years leading up to this, even though the state somehow missed this World Cup, there's a huge opportunity for North America to really, for, for them to believe they can really make inroads here in a big, big way. What does this do for minor soccer, for kids' soccer over the next few years? You know, my kid plays baseball, and any time the Jays do well, that there's yes. a ton of kids the next year signing up for baseball. Yep. What does this do for minor soccer in Canada? You, you hear the same thing with Hamilton minor football. They'll tell you that when the Ticats yeah, do yeah. really well, they get more kids sign up for sure. That's a really good question, and Scott, the reason that I'm sort of halting a little bit is because soccer is a little different in that when the Jays do well, the Jays are our team. There's no question that the vast majority of people who are baseball fans in this area, it's the Blue Jays. Soccer's a little different because Canada's never really been very good. Yeah, good point. And and so people have always latched onto, well, I'm a fan of Italy. Yeah, the, or, or they, just pick, they just pick the home team from the ancestry. Exactly. Yeah. Wherever you were from, that's the... And, and look, sure. drive down James Street during an Italy game and you tell me who yeah. is the home team. Yeah, exactly. So so what can it do? Um, it's, a, it's a great question because I think that many of the people already have a home team. Would Canada doing very well... I think Canada doing very well would certainly help in a big way. I think 
for those who don't necessarily have any kind of deep affiliation with the with the old country uh canada would canada doing well would spur a lot of interest in those who may only be casual fans look we've seen this before you mentioned the jays there are lots of people who are casual baseball fans who become rabidly interested yeah. when the jays are doing well I think you could expect to see the same thing if can when Canada was playing. If there is a sense that Canada could do well in this, at mm-hmm. least be competitive, I think you'd see a lot of people. And then, if you're a dad and you weren't necessarily a soccer fan, but you suddenly become interested in yeah. this if Canada does well, good point. Maybe you're more likely to sign your kid up, or a mom, or a mm-hmm. grandpa, or grandpa. So, it's the worst case scenario would be Canada being a complete and utter disaster of a flop. I just find it really hard to believe that knowing now that you've got eight years to build something, that that would be the case. Hmm. Scott Radley has been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, and, of course, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. You can hear Scott tonight and, of course, uh, all the tales and tribulations of the big uh, African trip. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.